It's April 12th, 2021. This is Rook. She is an acclaimed author, poet, and scholar who believes that women writers are at the forefront of modernizing and moderating Iranian culture and society. Dr. Fad Zonimilani is the leading voice on Persian female literature in the world and believes the impact and influence of Iranian women's words is experiencing a renaissance. She is a professor of Persian literature and women's studies and the foremost expert on the great poet Furuk Farahzad. And Farzane Milani joins me for a feature interview today about her own life journey and what she's now calling Threshold Literature. That's coming up, plus your letters about combis and more. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 101 of Rook. We are coming to you from Toronto, Canada, with a salute to all of you joining us from around the world. Salam Dustan Aziz. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. You can find us on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on iTunes, on Instagram, on YouTube, CastBox, and Telegram. What a couple of weeks it has been for us on Rook with Farbaz Aslani, Kambiz Hosseini, uh, Agavon, Kimia Yousafi, Bahadur Alast. Uh, you know what I say to all this, dear Shaya? I know. <laughs> what do I say? You say, oh, <laughs> I sometimes say that, but you know what I say today? Yes, all clear, no filler? No. No, I say something else. Ready? Yes. It's a new one. Is that a valid statement, Shaya? It's perfect. Wow. It's wrong. Listen, it's wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not true. It's kind of no, no, no. Yeah. It's definitely not true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, listen, Kian, if you need any tips on please, yes, just come I, to me. I need help, obviously, yeah, yeah. from you. Bachechu <laughs> bihastito. Uh, hello, Groovy Shaya. Hi, Salam. By the way, that means uh, you know what it means. What I was going to ask. It means uh, I think it means uh, Iranians are the most talented at everything, uh, which of course is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> partly true, partly, however, true, and sort certainly of, of the true. guests we've had. Yeah, actually, it means that only Iranian oh. knows art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> typical, a typical statement from an Iranian boy like myself. Uh, hello, Groovy Shaya. Hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Uh, when you hear this voice, you know it's Captain Reza. That's right. a robot. <laughs> and, and the fabulous Keon. Hi. Hello, Keon. Merci. That's all I got. <laughs> 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 and that's the end of our Farsi talking. <laughs> so bad. 
کیان هنر نزد ایرانیان است و بس بله درست میگی مرسی Uh, very honored to have Dr. Farzana Milani, if she'll still join us after <laughs> hearing this nonsense uh, coming up. She is uh, actually, she's so um, elegant in her manner and in her words and in her writing. And having just finished a couple of her books, I have to say she's uh, she's another guest that I will I already know I will not have enough time within an hour to cover all that uh, I would hope to. Her concept of threshold creativity, threshold literature, really intersects with, in a way, with what we try to do to a certain extent here at Rook, uh, humbly. <laughs> uh, and, th- and that is uh, standing, I mean, the idea resonated for me when I was reading about her. her this, it's standing at the crossroads of two ideas or two cultures or east and west think of the the threshold as the the doorway if you will standing in the doorway with one foot on either side and how that perspective informs and she would argue enriches our thinking and our writing and our perspectives uh, so we'll get into i mean she'll yeah. do a much better job of explaining that i would imagine that than uh, i could possibly do so but dr farzana milani coming up in just a few moments very much looking forward to that uh, I guess we're kind of basking in the glow of our 100th episode and uh, Dear Fatima Aslani, uh, it was last Thursday uh, and um, I, I just loved that interview and we're getting lovely feedback and, and we did do Persian subtitles on that. So Shai, you were saying that th- there's yes, people... Yes, actually a lot of my friends inside of Iran, mm. I, I know that they cannot understand English interview properly. Yeah. But because it has Persian subtitle, I received a lot of messages that it's amazing and wow, we really enjoyed the interview and I'm happy. Yeah, I, I, I got a lot of nice feedback too. Uh, Reza, do you have any friends who listen to uh, I Rook? I thought you meant in general. Well, yeah, I, I, I didn't know how to phrase it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I know the rest of us get great feedback. I think you just, uh, your friends are watching NASCAR or MMA fighting or no, something. And no, 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 I so. don't have, no, I do have a couple of friends who listen to Rook and stuff, but they all speak English, so I didn't get a feedback in terms of uh, <laughs> on the subtitle. Mm, what did you guys think of the subtitles? You guys think? You guys like it? It's probably why he has no friends. I don't know why I sound like Popeye all of a sudden. Hey. <laughs> he does, uh, that's the way you sound, does he sound, when you talk. Exactly. Really? We hear, hey guys, I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, uh, it's, you know, I know it's hard to hear, but that's, uh, listen back to the show, buddy. Uh, and uh, the fabulous Keon, you know, we, uh, we we also had Kambi Soseni on last mm-hmm. week. Uh, I want to say the great broadcaster, Kambi Soseni. I, uh, I'm a longtime fan. It was really enjoyable uh interviewing with him jousting with him on the air and i know we've got a lot of letters about this um but also i gotta uh, let me just talk about keon for a second and and (laughs) you know this keon i uh, she i I mean she has a way without saying it of upsetting all of the guests who (laughs) come on the show i don't understand why i mean I'm not even joking. Every other guest that we have on the show contacts me in one way or another in the days after the interview to say, well, and it's usually like something like where they go, um, that girl, like they won't say her name, you know, the woman that sits with you, she didn't, why doesn't she like me? And I'm just like, I, no, she does. I don't know. So we're doing our clubhouse town hall last Friday. 
and uh, you know we did it on Friday this time we did it a little earlier 4 p.m. Toronto New York time I want to say that because we're gonna do that same time this coming Friday so if you're used to the Rook Town Hall being it in the evening if you're in our time zone 8 p.m. it's now at 4 p.m. which means if you're listening in Europe or in Iran or elsewhere it's a little more friendlier time zone for you anyway we're there and combis joined us for the on the stage uh, for the for this clubhouse uh, again clubhouse is the audio app that you can get if you have an iPhone please join us find me find Rook media and, and we have this town hall each week really happy to have combis there and you know the topic uh, inspired by him was about happiness versus um bam you know where what are we like as as persians how do we deal with uh with tragedy in our lives and the all he wants to talk about the first thing he says is well first of all that why doesn't that woman because keon's on the stage why doesn't she like me you know and then we have to spend 15 minutes saying no as is she likes you it's good and i don't Every know t- i don't well, get it I, maybe you should think about the things you i mean I, if you don't like him it's okay but apparently you said you do I like did, him. i did not say such a thing i i'm generally a pretty sweet person i don't get it what would it is it my voice i said two things i said oh he's a very interesting guy two things i didn't like about what he said so let me, here's a, let me de- de- decode this for a second okay. because i think we are very western you and i and so I Sarcas- find sarcasm. Well, so, no, he gets sarcasm, but okay. I also think that we, you know, you're you're a straight shooter, and I think that there is kind of a, as we've talked about, there's a tarofia way of of kind of speaking that, you know, when you when the only thing you say after an interview is, yeah, I find that was very interesting, the person thinks, well, then you know, she didn't like it. It wasn't. It was. I mean, that that's the you didn't. I agree. You didn't say you didn't like him. I, right. Mind you, you then did go on to say I was offended by a couple of things he said <laughs> which is true <laughs> well <laughs> what do you does, want then but that you know? doesn't mean that i didn't like him i just <laughs> right. two two subjects that he covered i did not anyway, agree with so then the clubhouse was you know <laughs> yeah. hijacked by combis you know fighting with keon we you know since- why don't you like me <laughs> i do like you no you don't like me we have since become friends oh so that, you well, know there's nice. there's good there's a nice ending to that oh <laughs> yes okay uh, well, every Friday on Clubhouse, uh, we do our Rook Town Hall this Friday. Come for the topic and also to find out who Keon is pissed <laughs> off. Uh, which guest of the week? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Perhaps Dear Faz on Emilani. I just wonder about the woman who said that she found me interesting. But with that, that tone of voice, I. Uh, no, really, is that a bad thing if someone's interesting? I, I mean, you know, but the thing is, is that we bring on people who've like, you know, had a career of writing incredible pieces of work mm-hmm. or something and they're you know 75 years old and then you say well i found yeah that person is sort of interesting and they think well you know <laughs> they're sort right. of d- downplaying their their you know their abilities okay maybe, then you know. i'll just i I'll mean you 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 say whatever you what comes naturally you be you okay. keon june keon try not to offend anybody right but there is something because i mean i you know it's literally and like it's a funny. parade of messages i get it's after funny every show you say that too it very this over the weekend one of our other guests i won't say who recently uh, reached out to me saying you know that Nuru's video you guys posted changed my view of you completely I was like what is it about my voice like do I sound like a horrible human being it's like you know my demeanor kind of showed who I am you're very sweet you're very sweet (laughs) I don't Uh. get it yes you're very sweet and also disapproving of people (laughs) apparently um 
it is that the, the concept uh, or the idea that I want to discuss this week coming up on our Rook Town Hall is Persians in the diaspora. What is the concept of home? Where do we consider home? Which is something that uh, is kind of an ongoing like discussion that. that we have. And it's something that I think everyone can speak to mm-hmm. uh, because some of us are still searching for that home, that hune, no matter where we are in the world, no matter how long it's been since uh, we or our families left the, the country of our ancestry. And, you know, as Farzan Emilani talks about in one of her books, I, I think she might refer to it today, but even Furu Farzad didn't feel like she was at home in Iran. She felt like an outsider in Iran. So what is the concept of home? Anyway, we'll get to that on Clubhouse if you join us there. It's the one-year anniversary of Rook this week. Um, Actually, it is Friday, exactly. This coming Friday is one year since we launched in. We've got some great guests coming up uh, this Thursday. Pune Odusi, the great broadcaster. I think Pune is probably one of the few people in the world who has been and is a great broadcaster in Persian, in Farsi. You know, she was she was uh, very famously on BBC Persian. Nobata uh, Shema was yes. her famous show, right? Uh, and in English, she's yes. been an anchor on BBC World for many years as well. And she's uh, she's a fabulous talent. And looking forward to having her. Bahman Globadi, the, the amazing Ooh. filmmaker. A Time for Drunken Horses, one of my favorite films ever. Uh, and, and I think maybe the first film ever made feature film about Kurds, or at least with Kurdish people in the forefront of the storyline. Bahman Gobadi, who's working on a new film, and I think he's going to reach him in Turkey or something. Uh, Piaz Miaz, the fabulous uh, chef and innovative uh, kitchen creative talent. And Dr. Angie Sadeqi, who's an expert on health and wellness and plant-based diets, Kian. Something I can never switch over to. Maybe she will change your mind. Perhaps. Uh, we would love you folks out there to become patrons of our show if you like what you hear. Uh, for sure, if you're a regular listener, five or ten bucks a month makes a big difference to us to become our BFF. It's all it takes, $5 and $10 a month. You choose uh, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. So we will get to letters of the week. Uh, about Kambi Soseni and more yeah. in a little while. The fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. See you in a little bit. Here we go. My featured guest today is an award-winning translator, a poet, an author, and a scholar who has published over 100 articles, epilogues, forwards, and afterwards in Persian and in English. Dr. Farzone Milani is a professor of Persian literature and women's studies at the University of Virginia and a former chair of the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures. She is a recipient of the Carnegie Fellowship and the National Endowment for the Humanities, also of the All-University Teaching Award as well as the Zintel Leadership Award that was uh, given to her in 2015. Farzaneh was born in Tehran. She had an international education, attending Catholic co-educational French schools before locating to the United States in 1967. There, she attended the California State University at Hayward, graduating with a BA in French literature before obtaining a PhD in comparative literature at UCLA. In 1986, after a four-year stint at her alma mater, 
as an instructor of Persian language and literature. She took a position at the University of Virginia, where she has stayed. Farzadeh has published several books, the literary biography of Furuk Farzad, with unpublished letters, Words Not Swords, Iranian Women Writers and the Freedom of Movement, and her 1992 book, Veils and Words, The Emerging Voices of Iranian Women Writers, has seen its 16th printing. Farzaneh has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Christian Science Monitor, Ms. Magazine, Reader's Digest, USA Today, and NPR's All Things Considered. She has presented more than 250 lectures internationally, and she is considered the foremost global expert on female Iranian literature and writers. And right now, Dr. Farzaneh Milani joins me from Charlottesville, Virginia today. Hello. Uh, greetings to you, dear Jian. This was uh, too kind and too generous an introduction. I'm most grateful, but allow me to also um, say hello to the wonderful uh, Rook team and to your wonderful audience. You're very kind. You know, I've been very much looking forward to this. There's so very much I want to use this valuable opportunity to sit down with you to ask you about. Uh, let me try to distill it uh, for you to, so you know the path that we're taking. It. I want to get into your story. I want to get into the impact and influence of Iranian female writers. Of course, Furuk Farzad, we have to talk a bit about. And finally, a, a new concept you have introduced or talked about more recently called threshold literature and the threshold perspective. Hopefully, we can get to all of that. Does that sound good? That sounds wonderful. All right. Well, let me start with your passion. You are not just the most valued source and resource in the world when it comes to the study of female literature and writers from Iran and in Iran. You not coincidentally have a real passion for it as well. Why do you have such a personal commitment over the years to the writings of women in Iran? Well, thank you. Uh, you're being too kind and overly generous. Uh, but I can talk about my passion. You're absolutely right. Um, from early childhood, I had a passion for words. Uh, I loved literature. One of the happiest memories of my childhood is when my mother will take out her Koliyate Divane Hafez, kiss the book, close her eyes, say a short prayer for Hafez, and with her stained, uh, cigarette-stained fingers, uh, open it to a random page mm. and read it to her five children uh, sitting in a circle around her. At times, our helpers around the house will join in. To me, this was a magical, mystical moment of communion and communication. Uh, the poetry of Hafez brought us all together. We all became equal partners in listening. So with that in mind, and with the importance of poetry in my childhood and stories, of course, um, I started chasing other dreams and other stories. 
And that brought me to the United States of America. And once here, as I have repeatedly said it, uh, I became an Iranian after leaving Iran. And I started uh, looking for signposts, for familiar places, uh, for something I, I could hold on to. And again, books came to my help. They became my shelter, my refuge, my solace. And in particular, I found the writing of Iranian women writers very helpful. They really helped me find my own voice. They helped me wash my gaze, cleanse my words, dust off the mirror of my soul. Mm. They offered me a surrogate home, a part portable Iran. And that's how my journey as a student of Iranian women's writers began. You know, I, I have to uh, underscore something you've just said because I just found it so profoundly beautiful. There, There is this beautiful passage in the prologue to your book, Words Not Swords, um, that you've paraphrased to a certain extent here. Uh, uh, it, it is a passage that really intersects as well with our ongoing interest in identity on this program. Uh, I, I want to quote you uh, back to you in, in, in terms of something, as I say, you've just mentioned. You say in this, in this prologue, chasing new dreams and different stories, I left my home country and ironically, it was by leaving Iran that I became an Iranian. Uprooted and transplanted, I looked every which way for a sense of familiarity and belonging. I needed something solid to hold on to, some familiar signposts, a lasting fixture in the ceaselessly changing landscape of my immigrant life. Iranian literature became my surrogate home. You, you've just spoken about that, but I, I wonder if you can go a little bit deeper on the idea of leaving Iran to become Iranian. Uh, it's fascinating, but it, I think it's something that many of us could relate to. Can you just meditate on that for a moment? You know, I think identity um, is always evolving, always changing, multiple. Uh, so um, when I was in Iran, I was an Iranian in my own country. Um, if you would ask me to identify myself, I would have never said I'm an Iranian. Hmm. It was understood. It was like the air. <laughs> it was everywhere. Hmm. It was so much part of the atmosphere, my surrounding, that there was no need uh, to point it out. But once I left Iran, once uh, I became an immigrant, and definitely my journey as an immigrant has evolved, has changed for a while. I considered myself strictly an Iranian. And I can tell you, it took me several years, in fact, decades, to even change my citizenship, even though I had my green card in the early 1970s. Because I, cons I still considered myself an Iranian. Right. It took me a while to realize that 
unlike Nehru, there was this quotation I remember of Nehru, and I hope I'm not uh, slaughtering it. Uh, it's my memory of it. Nehru once said, I'm a queer mixture of East and West, out of place everywhere, at home, nowhere. I remember in the early years of our arrival in the United States of America, that was a quotation that spoke to me, mm. that I identified with. Uh, I don't now. I think now I feel proud to say I'm an Iranian-American. Um, I'm not out of place in both countries. Right. I love both countries. And this insider, outsider, has given me a perspective that I think might be of some value. Yes. I mean, you've been described as brilliantly bicultural, you know, that you've thrived in both places, you know. But I, I, this idea of being more, of, of leaving Iran to become Iranian, it still, it plays with my mind. I, I like the idea. I want to try to understand it. Do you think that it's partly because we leave Iran and we then realize how different we are in the West? Or do you think it's that we leave Iran and suddenly have an appreciation the way one does when one grows up and isn't around one's parents all the time? They go, oh, they I, now I really appreciate what they, they were doing all those years. Is it something like that? Um, you know, this is a wonderful question, and I hope my answer will not disappoint you. But I think identity is dialogical. I think we become different people in different relationships, in different surroundings, in different countries. In my own country, it was understood, it was taken for granted that I am an Iranian. Right. When I came here, my relationship with my adoptive land was a different relationship. Um, the fact that I did not speak the language or very little of it when I first came, the fact that I still have an accent, the fact that after all these years, more than half a century, I still make mistakes regarding gender. There are times that I will address a man as she uh, or a woman as he because on some deep level, I still think as an Iranian, right. and the Persian language is not gender marked. Yes. There is no he and she in the Persian language. Um, so um, I had to leave the country to become aware of this one layer of my identity. One of my most favorite books uh, is a book by this French author, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's called The Little Prince. Le Petit Prince. I, le, yes, mm. yes. Um, I love that book. And um, I think I know most of it by heart. But the fox at some point mm -hmm. um, gives the little prince a wonderful advice. He 
tells the little prince, says the most important things in life are invisible to the eyes. My identity as an Iranian was as important to me when I was in Iran, but it was not visible. Mm -hmm. It became visible after I left Iran. Mm. Uh, it became a marker of me, of the way I looked, the way I talked, uh, the way I composed myself in public places, uh, the way I looked, the way I listened. Uh, all of these uh, were clues to my interlocutors that I'm not one of them that I am a guest for a while, I felt as an outsider. Now, again, I think it's a privilege, I consider it a privilege that I am now an insider and outsider. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm gonna get to your decision to become uh, to embrace being an outsider and then become an insider uh, in, in just a little bit. But let me stick with you. We were just talking about your your childhood and growing up and your life story so far. It's not necessarily one of material struggle. I mean, you you didn't grow up poor or, or without resources, but, but it is of a struggle to really push to follow your passions in the realm in which we've been discussing. Uh, first of all, you've said that you were supposed to study, and by supposed to study, I imagine that means uh, the, the parental pressure. Uh, you were supposed to study medicine, but you, of course, loved language and literature. And there's this moment in your life when both your father and your husband were pushing you to be a dentist. You've called that the biggest rebellion you ever had in your life, to try and push against that, and successfully so, as we now know. Give us a sense of how that played out. Yes, uh, thank you so much for this amazing uh, time you have spent uh, studying uh, my life. And uh, I feel honored and uh, humbled by what you have done. Thank you. Um, so um, there are two sentences um, that I remember as a motto. Uh, in my father's life. He always said, I will sell even the rug under my feet for the education of my five children. Agar lazim boshe, qali zire paamam mifrusham baray tahsilat bachaham. And I can tell you, he did that as did my mother. Uh, their devotion, like all Iranian parents, is really a source of great pride for uh, all of us, their dedication to the education of their children. The other motto that he loved to say and repeat was that I'm gonna build a big building uh, with five stories and the first one will say Dr. Hossein Milani. <laughs> the second floor will be Dr. Hassan Milani. Right. And, you know, the hierarchy was age, uh, 
um, uh, I was the only daughter, but I'm the middle, the third child. I was right in the middle, the third floor. And then Dr. Abbas Emilani, Dr. Mohsen Emilani. My father loved medicine. I think he wanted to become a doctor himself, but circumstances did not allow him to do so. And so he always argued, even when I was much younger and loved uh, literature, he always told me, look, Farzane, become a doctor. And back then, he wouldn't even accept dentistry as an option. <laughs> right, so right, right. A Too down market, the dentistry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So become a doctor and write all the poetry you want. <laughs> I'm not going to um, tell you not to do that. But look, every doctor can be a poet, but no poet can be a doctor or a dentist in my case. Right. So in fact, um, I did go to dental school for two years. I, uh, um, back in Iran, National University um, uh, of Tehran, um, finished two years and then we moved to the US and I was gonna go back to dental school. That was the understanding, that uh, was the unwritten contract. Uh, but I had to start working uh, for family reasons. And I think working and realizing how important it is to have a passion in life, uh, other than your family, uh, that in order for your profession to become your passion. Uh, I realized that because uh, I went um, uh, to uh, Cal State in Hayward um, in order to prepare um, to go to dental school. And I started uh, taking courses in French literature and I absolutely loved it. And then I stopped going to school uh, for three or four years, and I worked uh, to put my husband through school. Uh, he went back to dental school at USC. And by that time, I was convinced uh, my passion in life, other than relationships, other than just life itself, mm -hmm. is literature. And I will admit to you, it was a very difficult decision. Both my husband and my father uh, wanted me to uh, become a dentist and to pursue dentistry as a field. And as my father would continue to remind me, pursue poetry also. <laughs> but the, the, the weird part is, and, and by the way, I went through this exactly with my father and, and my father, like your father, valued um, an education above all else. But doesn't becoming a professor of uh, literature, getting the PhD, doesn't that count? I mean, that doesn't that count as one of the, the floors on the building? <laughs> like you and Abbas? I mean, I mean, rather than, does it have to be a medical doctor? This is one of these things that we discuss over and over on this show because it's so reductive. It's always been medical doctor or engineer. And sometimes yeah. I don't understand why it was so limited to those two things. Yes, well, because 
my father always believed that as a medical doctor, uh, or later on, he, he, he added dentistry to the list, um, you can always have economic independence. Um, right. He insisted on that, and it is also fascinating that he wanted this for his own daughter uh, also. And my father was not very highly educated. He was an importer-exporter. Uh, he was a businessman. And for him uh, to have such amazingly egalitarian views uh, yes. of men and women really boggles my mind to this day. Uh, but the main reason for him was, was that um, I'm not sure about myself. I hope that he was uh, also um, not disappointed in what I did, but I know he was very proud of my brothers. And I know one of my brothers actually did follow the field mm -hmm. of medicine and became a physician. If the first rebellion was uh, uh, pushing against the notion that you had to go into medicine and, and following your passion of literature, there is a second rebellion that happens once you are in America and you are studying literature. And you're going to finish your PhD thesis on and in French literature, Flaubert and Madame Bovary. And then yes. you pivot to the study of Persian writers and in particular, of course, Fouduk Farouk much to the yes. chagrin of your academic advisors and those around you. One of them tells you that this is going to be professional suicide, quote unquote. Why was the lure of Iranian literature so strong for you to, in that moment, make that dramatic shift? No, it's uh, so interesting what you're saying. Uh, you know, there are certain things to go back to the little prince. Um, some of the most important things in life are invisible to the naked eye. Um, but recently, for Women's um, History uh, Month, um, I was interviewed by some of the students um, at UVA, and their last question was, uh, what would your advice be uh, to women who want to pursue uh, a career in your field? And it was interesting. It didn't take me a split of a second. Um, my response was, follow your heart. Hmm. It will never mislead you. So I think, in a way, the reason I pursued the field of comparative literature, you know, I switched major again. I went from dentistry to French literature, from French literature to comparative literature. Yes. I, I had become a butt of joke. You know, people <laughs> said... Uh, dear friends lovingly said that she will never finish a degree. <laughs> as soon as she's close to the finish line, she's going to switch again. Uh, but I did. And, and by the way, you know, you, you were groundbreaking in your study of Fouduk Farouzad. So there, there wasn't really a great blueprint for what you were doing. It's not like there have been thousands of other women studying this before. So that would, to the outsider, those around you, your loving uh, circle or whatever, make it seem even more zany, right? What is it you're doing, Farouzad <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. First, I have to acknowledge that uh, Professor Ardalon Davaran had written a dissertation at UC Berkeley. It was a comparison of uh, Farouk Farouksad and Sylvia Plath. I believe his dissertation, I'm not sure now, it's either in comparative literature or Persian literature, but he had done that. But to the best of my knowledge, my dissertation was um, one of the earlier ones that focused only on an Iranian uh, women writer. And I have to say, not every professor at UCLA, not everyone thought uh, the same. But I remember vividly the day uh, one of my professors uh, who thought I was doing well uh, in the French department told me that it's a triple professional suicide, uh, this move, um, that um, as a woman, as an Iranian woman writing on another Iranian woman, and both of us with unpronounceable name, uh, that this was going to be um, a, a triple suicide, that he thought that I will never be able to find a job. And, uh, and you know, to be fair, at the time, uh, world literature uh, was not what it is today. Mm-hmm. If you looked at the anthologies, the few available anthologies at the time, of um, world literature, you would rarely see references to modern literature in Iran. So, you know, I was doing something not only on Iranian literature, but also on modern literature, and worse yet, on a woman. Do you remember Uh, why you and how you soldiered on? I mean, you could be forgiven if at that point you'd defer to the authority of some successful professor, some advisors saying, this is professional suicide, don't do this. And, uh, you, you know, uh, even even to regret it later, but you wouldn't be the first person if you chose to stay with your French uh, literature study. How did you make the decision to soldier on? Again, um, I'm sure these uh, important decisions Uh, These turning points in one's life don't have a single reason behind them. I'm sure uh, there were uh, several factors contributing to it, um, not the least of which is this uh, wonderful professor I had, uh, Professor Amin Banani, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, who believed this is indeed the right decision. Um, But, you know, it was a passion uh, for me. It was something I loved. I did not think about the future. I did not think about whether or not I would be able to find a job. I, and I'm not proud to say these things at this point. I got lucky. I, um, I was hired upon graduation and I taught at UCLA for four years before coming to the University of Virginia. And yes. I've been here 37 years yes. now. Um, so, um, you know, um, luck was 
of course, a very important factor. But I think what helped me was absolute passion I had um, for, um, by that time, for Iranian women poets and writers, and in particular, Fudofar Rafsad. Jobs do become available to you, not just in the U.S. And back to this notion of the the Iranian who uh, leaves Iran to find out she's Iranian or to really discover that she's Iranian. I should note that you came to America at the age of 20 in 1967. Um, your brother Abbas also came, but with the intention of returning to Iran, which he did in the 1970s. You stayed in the West. And right when you make this shift in your PhD and complete it and uh, and you end up teaching in UCLA, but you had a scholarship to teach at the University of Tehran when you first graduated in 1979, as I understand it. Did you ever regret uh, that you did not go back? No, I, I'm sorry. I did not have a scholarship. I had an invitation. Okay. Uh, the Department of Comparative Literature at Tehran University was newly founded, and I had a PhD in comparative literature from a premier institution. Um, I got an invitation to uh, go and teach there. Um, not so bad. University of Tehran not, is not so bad. Oh, <laughs> it was one so. of the proudest moments uh, of my life. Uh, but at that time, as you might recall, um, the revolution had happened. Uh, no, I was here. I had already at that time uh, two uh, children. And uh, I did not go back. Has there ever been a moment where you wonder about what it would have been like for you if you did go back? I mean, even professionally in terms of your area of study? Of course, of course. Uh, you know, the, the older I get, uh, the more uh, I think about the past. And these turning moments, these uh, threshold moments in my life, uh, I, I, I think about them. Uh, I try to better understand them. Uh, but um, of course, uh, I do think about them. And I will tell you the most important reason I think about them uh, is because of my parents. I uh, did not have the privilege to be with them uh, when they were older. And I do think about that. I, um, the decision to stay here uh, had wonderful uh, wonderful, uh, offered me wonderful opportunities and all that. But uh, I do think about the fact that it did deprive me mm. of the privilege uh, to be closer to my parents and perhaps uh, help them uh, when they were older. Uh, only in terms of being a presence in their lives. Of course, life. of course. Let me shift to the work you have done um, since that moment uh, and the impact and influence of Iranian female writers, your focus for the last four decades or so. You've said, one of the things you've said a few times, uh, Farzana, is that, is that in the last 170 years, uh, 
Women have been at the forefront of, as you say, moderating and modernizing. They've been at the forefront of a moderating and modernizing movement in Iran and the Islamic world. What does that mean? Yes, uh, I have said that. In fact, I have also said that I believe not only two, but three revolutions have happened in Iran in the last century and a half. Uh, we have the Constitutional Revolution of 1905-1911. We have the 1979 revolution. And I believe there is a third revolution that completely changed gender relations and the cultural and political landscape in Iran. And that's the women's revolution. By that, I don't mean that it was only women who did this revolution, although I think they were at the forefront of it. But there were many men who were instrumental and who were best support of this uh, desegregating, moderating, modernizing revolution, even though it was bloodless, uh, even though it took a long time. It, it didn't happen uh, overnight. I am convinced that uh, even though mm, when uh, the overall overwhelming majority of, um, of scholars who write about modernity in Iran, um, who write about the cultural landscape in Iran, uh, do not give a central place to the role women have played. I think it's impossible to talk about modernity in Iran, about the reforms in Iran, uh, about the amazing changes, the desegregation of Iran, uh, without focusing on the high price women have paid and the amazing role they have played in that um, movement. Fascinating. Just to, just to clarify, as you're talking about it, what is what would be the timeline of that third revolution? Is that happening parallel through that 150 years of the of through the 20th century, or are you, are you talking? Yes. yes. So this yeah. is before the the, revolu the the Islamic Revolution of 79. Oh, absolutely. I think the beginning uh, of this moderating um, movement, desegregating movement, can be traced back to 170 years ago. Um, you know, social movements uh, are not like pregnancy. Um, you cannot give a specific date for them. Uh, I'm, I realize that. But um, to just give you a date, uh, you know, 1848 is considered a very important year for a variety of reasons in the world. Um, but in particular, when it comes to women's movements, um, there is a lot of focus uh, in at least the Western world, on the Seneca Falls Convention. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of it for sure. many. It is the beginning of the women's movement in the United States of America and uh, in the West. 
Now, two weeks prior to the Seneca Falls Convention, there was uh, a congregation in uh, Badasht uh, in northwestern Iran, where a woman, also a poet, uh, entered uh, an all-male, like usual, segregated space of 81 men. She, uh, she unveiled her face, but more importantly, she unveiled her voice. And um, so she became a body with a voice and a voice with a body. And I consider that moment a turning point. I consider it as important as the Seneca Falls Convention. Now, Tahere believed um, in a Bobby faith, and as you know, uh, she is a um, major figure in the Baha'i faith. Uh, she was one of the first 19 disciples of Bob, a woman. And, you know, if we want to understand the significance of what she did, perhaps we should study that congregation a little bit more. Yeah. One man uh, wanted to um, kill Tahere, uh, some men closed their eyes. They could not allow the sanctity of their eyes or their ears um, to be violated by the presence or the voice of a woman in an all-male territory. Another man, one Abdul Khaliq Isfahani, uh, slit his own throat. That's how disoriented he felt. Oh, boy. You know, um, with the presence of this woman. Uh, in this gathering, and splattered with blood, he left the premises. I've been very interested in his life. I've been very interested in writing at least a short biographical sketch of uh, Mr. Abdul Khaliq Isfahani. I sympathize with him. I understand how difficult it must have been for him um, to suddenly see a woman in a space that did not allow the presence of a woman. But, you know, when he left the premises at Badasht, he also left the pages of Iranian history. At least I have not been able to find much information about him beyond that. But that scene, in a nutshell, gives us a taste of the significance of desegregation in Iran. I want to bring to your attention that even today, in most family reunions, you know, extended family, of course, Iranians have a wonderful love of family and extended family. It would not surprise me that you will see a group of men in one corner and a group of women in another corner. To me, this is the remnant of that segregation, mm. of that division of space between men and women. I have so many questions I want to ask you uh, based on what you've just said. Let me try and limit them to, to three because I know I can't keep you here for a week. But, but, but in the book, Veils and Words, 
1992, the yearbook, you argued that the veil had covered not only Iranian women's bodies, but also their literary output. This speaks to the idea that, to take your, your thesis that the moderating and the modernizing was being happening was, was happening by Iranian female writers, not necessarily visibly so. So much of the story of literary works and texts produced by Iranian women in the past is the lack of any visibility. How, how would our definitions of modernity have changed if women writers' voices had been more prominently heard? Well, the voices of Iranian women have been heard, and women paid a very high price for it. I mean, if you uh, study uh, the lives of Iranian women writers in the last 170 years, you might find yourself surprised and awed uh, by the willingness um, of women to pay this price. Uh, let me just give you a couple of examples. Tahir Quratul In was executed at the age of 36. Parvine Etesani died of a mysterious typhoid fever at the age of 34. Furukh Farrokhzad uh, died in a car accident after a number of attempted suicides at the age of 32. I, I can give you a long list of Iranian women writers uh, who have attempted suicide, who have succeeded in their suicide, um, who have uh, paid an incredibly high price, who have suffered um, deep depression, um, who have been hospitalized, institutionalized, who have uh, suffered uh, um, separation from their children. Um, so the price has been exuberant, but the gains have also been awesome. Jian, it is impossible to talk about Iranian literature these days and not to talk about Iranian women writers mm -hmm. and poets inside Iran or in diaspora. In effect, Persian literature, the glorious arena of Persian literature, has been desegregated. You know, earlier, who are the people that uh, the world knew about um, when it came to Iranian literature? It was Saadi, and it Hafez, was Hafez, Omar and Khayyam, it was yeah, yeah. Omar Khayyam, and it was Ferdowsi, and it was Attar, all wonderful, wonderful. Um, they deserve to be celebrated even more. I always say that Iranian literature is one of the, still to this day, one of the most undiscovered treasures of world literature. There is still so much to be translated. There is still so much to be done in terms of literary criticism and um, life narratives and the rest of it. But whereas two decades ago, three decades ago, four decades ago, um, it was an all-male arena. Mm. Um, 
it's impossible to talk about Iranian literature now and not to talk about some of these women, poets, novelists, um, uh, not to applaud of what they have done. How does the the revolution of 79, I'm, I'm imagining it, surely it threw a curveball into the progress that uh, women writers were, were making in, in, in the moderating and modernizing realm. When you talk about, in, in one of your most recent books, Words Not Swords, you've talked about your, uh, as a focus on women writers in Iran, you say it's really about sex segregation in the Islamic world, which you've talked a bit about. If it's about undoing that segregation for all those, for the, the 130 years preceding the, the revolution, what happens after 1979? Well, we cannot talk about it um, and generalize it. Um, four decades have passed, and uh, these 40 years have been um, different. Uh, one thing is for sure, that there is uh, now a renaissance uh, of uh, women's writing. Uh, both inside and outside the country. Mm. But to only talk about inside the country, let me give you an example. We focused mainly on poetry. Uh, let me give you an example of uh, prose. The first major uh, collection of short story uh, was written by Simin Doneshwar, Fire Quenched, Atashe uh, Khamush, uh, was published in 1944. Um, and uh, then, of course, her masterpiece, which I consider still a masterpiece of modern Persian literature, Savashun, was published in 1967. Uh, and I'm now I'm about to use the research of uh, literary critiques inside the country. In those early years um, of um, women's entrance into prose writing, uh, even though it's fascinating that women have been the ultimate storytellers, and it goes back to Shahrazad, the ultimate storyteller, mm -hmm. um, but the arena of publishing, um, giving voice to your body and body to your voice, um, that's lasted uh, a long time for women uh, to gain access to the public domain. If in the 40s, um, the number of women novelists were um, about two dozen, in recent decades, um, we have 370 women novelists inside the country. Basically as many as men as many as men. Yes. Uh, we also have wonderful translators. Uh, we have women uh, publishers, and that is so important because then they can publish the works that perhaps other publishers will not consider um, important and topical. Um, so there is a, a renaissance, and um, 
although uh, fortunately she has passed away, uh, the role that Simin Behbahani played in um, the years after the revolution uh, by becoming uh, the voice of dissent in Iran, uh, by writing the kind of history of the last 40 years that you cannot find in history books, uh, by becoming the lioness of Iran, mm. by being considered by people, not the government, um, their poet, their national poet. Uh, so things have changed, and there is definitely uh, an amazing um, renaissance. And if I am hopeful about the future. One of the reasons uh, is the incredible struggle of women in Iran, including women writers at the forefront. Let me come back to the modern day and where we're at right now. I, before we do that, though, I, I just want to take a couple of steps back. And um, I said at the top that we, we must talk about Furuk Farakzad and uh, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to ask you about her because you've had something about lifelong love story with her works and her presence. And, and of course, as we noted earlier, you did that dissertation. You did your PhD on Furuk. In fact, your thesis was called Furuk Farakzad, A Feminist Perspective. She has been someone central to your work for many years. When did you first encounter her writing? You might be surprised uh, if I tell you that my original introduction to Farosad was in fact not her poetry or her writing, but her film. The film, I was going to, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I vividly recall uh, it was one hot summer day, uh, the smell of jasmine everywhere. And um, I was in the little garden my parents had and um, I was a young teenager and from the yard I could see um, the television screen which was in the living room and I was stunned uh, by what I saw in one uh, split of a second Um, disfigured images but majestic dignified images of, uh, of patients, of patients who suffered from leprosy. Yes. Uh, I could barely look at them, but I could also not stop looking at it. I remember I could barely sleep that night. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm now putting words in the mouth of Farzanim Milani of... Uh, six decades ago, five and a half decades ago. But if I could use what I now think is so unusual about this film, the compassion of the director that who had done that film, uh, the capacity uh, to turn something and I don't want to use the word, but some something that we did consider unsightly, unbeautiful, to turn it into such an aesthetic experience, mm. uh, to return to these people who were ostracized for no fault of their own, uh, was 
a biological conundrum. They they were um, they were sick um, to literally turn them into prisoners, uh, into a colony, and to turn that film into that experience that someone like me could not stop watching it was my first introduction to Furo Farosad. And from then, uh, she became a companion. You've said that uh, Furo Farosad was a self-consciously modern poet. Uh, and I get—I mean, she was unquestionably modern by mid-20th-century Iranian standards. What is the self-conscious part? Oh, um, everything about her poetry. Um, you know, she was a pusher of uh, all boundaries. Uh, she was a woman who was not only a seeker after truth and beauty and authenticity, but also after the right of an individual. She was a woman, a poet, a cinematographer, uh, who believed in the right of the individual, but more importantly, who believed in the responsibility that came with that freedom. You know, the first poem, the first major poem she ever published is called I sinned. Hmm. This was in the early 1950s in Iran. You know, the the time of the coup d'etat of 1953, uh, where everybody was pointing at someone at someone else as the culprit. A woman in her um, early 20s wrote a piece and published a piece with her name, with two photographs of herself saying, no, I'm the one who sinned. I sinned. She took full responsibility for what she considered at the time her sin. In that 12-line poem, there is no partner in sin. She takes pride in owning her body and her desire. She rejects the fact that women have been denied the right to have access to their sexual needs and desires the way they wanted to. But there is no partner in sin. She is the responsible party. And she did that to the end of her life. If taking full responsibility for her needs and her desires was how she started, she finished with one of the most modern, one of the most important, um, iconic uh, poems of modern Persian literature. It's called, I Feel Sorry for the Garden. Mm. In it, 
I believe, for the first time, an Iranian predicted the revolution, and that was in the 1960s. To the best of my knowledge, no one had predicted that a revolution was to happen. In that poem, there is a clear reference to the fact that a revolution is on its way. And what does she say in that poem? She says, I feel sorry for the garden because the garden is dying a death and no one is paying any attention. And um, she takes a family um, as the unit and she blames the father, the mother, the brother, and the sister for not taking their civic duty seriously. And, you know, it's a beautiful poem. You know, the father reads Shahnameh uh, and um, is happy with past glories. And uh, the mother is constantly praying. And um, the sister is now uh, living on the other side of the city and doesn't care about um, the poverty of other people and the fact that the garden is dying at death. Uh, a painful death. And the brother, who is an intellectual uh, uh, philosopher of some kind, takes his despair um, to um, a wine shop and drinks it away. And, and then at the end, and that's what I love about the writing of women, most of overwhelming majority of them, is that they don't believe in violence. At the end, she repeats it three times. She says, but I know this garden that is dying can't be taken to a hospital. I know it, I know it, I know it, she says. I often ask myself, what would have happened if our politicians would have listened more carefully to our women writers. Well, she was famously ostracized by um, many elements of those who were in power. She dies in her 30s, quite tragically. The story that you've been, the fact that folks like you have been bringing her story to light publicly, have been... Um, putting her name back in, in into the consciousness in a much bigger way. What are the implications of that? What does it mean to recast the private story of a female individual who did so much as public history? It's a rewriting of the history. And you know that history has been written mainly by men all over the world, but definitely in Iran. It is uh, desegregating an arena that has not paid enough attention to the significant role women have played, both inside the home and now more and more outside of it. 
And I have to say, the most important people who are making sure the name of Fruh Farrokhzad uh, is eternal are the people of Iran, are um, Iranians inside and outside the country. It's their amazing, um, awe-inspiring love of her work. Uh, you know, I'm very interested in women's uh, life narratives and um, an avid reader of them. And it really is a source of joy to me to see how many of these women have said in one form or another that when they left Iran, one of the few things they made sure to bring with them uh, was a book of Furur Farosad, one of her poetry collections. Now, many, oh, I have to say that, um, you know, poetry is so important to us, um, to Iranian, and I love that about my culture. But these are uh, the, the youth in Iran. Uh, you know, when you go to Zahir Dole, I haven't been back to Iran for the last 19 years, uh, alas. Uh, but prior to that, when I could go every time, uh, I did go to Zahir Dole a few times. And I did go because it was a study uh, in how young people congregated uh, in Zahir Dole, brought their books of uh, Farosad's poetry, brought candles and flowers and sat around uh, that grave and read out loud her beautiful poetry. It was really, for me, a moment of magic and mystery, uh, a moment that I thought, as long as we have such people in Iran, no one will be able to slaughter uh, messages of people like Furul Farosad. I'm so grateful to get to uh, learn from you and to ask you these questions and to have your your time uh, to do this. I thank you. I said that I was going to return to the modern day before we finish this off. And you said a few moments ago that you believe there is a renaissance among women creatives uh, coming out of Iran. And and you've talked very, very recently. Um, there was a, a series of pieces that you wrote in BBC Persian uh, about the surprising splendor of what is happening at a crossroads of opposites you've called the threshold. Right. Can you talk about this threshold, threshold literature? Of course, uh, with great pleasure. You know, I believe at the intersection of opposites, marvels can be created. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, at the break of dawn, uh, when light and darkness coexist, and our ancestors, uh, in their infinite wisdom, called it Gorgomish, wolf, sheep, 
you know, the two enemies hmm. coming together, uh, light and darkness, that's when the sun rises. When sunlight and falling rain coexist, a rainbow is created, a bridge um, connecting um, heaven and earth. I think the same thing happens when one refuses to see the world in terms of binary opposites, heroes or villains, right or wrong, east or west, here or there, us or them. What I see happening uh, inside the country, but definitely among women writers in diaspora, is the birth of a new kind of literature. I call it threshold literature. Uh, threshold because these women are standing um, at the threshold. You know, in Iran, uh, I remember, uh, at least in my family, uh, when we traveled, when we went for an important exam, my mother would always uh, hold the Quran over our head. And uh, at the threshold, nowhere else, at the threshold. And of course, uh, Jews um, have a mezuzah mm -hmm. that they hang um, at the doorframe. And I've always been fascinated by this um, question. What is so important about um, this, the architecture uh, of um, a threshold? Um, we call it Ostane. And I have to add um, that it has a central place in Farrakhzad's poetry. And it has a central place in the writing of uh, women novelists writing in diaspora, um, women who have been winning all kinds of awards, unusual as it is, both in terms of the significance of it and the numbers of it. Um, so at that point, um, you know, where the exit and the entrance are co-joined, um, where possibilities and challenges uh, happen at that space. Um, something happens, something um, that, that can be dangerous, but also something that can be um, beautiful, like a rainbow, life-giving, uh, life uh, like the rise uh, of sun uh, every morning. Mm. Um, so the writing of women writers in the last 20 years, uh, in the few languages that I know, um, books that have been written in the languages of the host countries, um, I see them at the threshold of East and West. Uh, I see them trying to see the world in terms of and rather than or, uh, good and bad right and wrong, hero and villain. Yes. Um, and if I may add, um, 
the program, uh, you and your team uh, um, have uh, started, to me, is another clear indication of this refusal to submit to binary modes of thought, mm. um, this refusal to be a prisoner of geography, of um, conventions, of borders, uh, this uh, beautiful attempt to bring East and West together. Thank you. Thank you to be try and be that nexus. I appreciate you you saying that. By the way, my mother still holds the Quran above my head at the threshold, even if I want to go to the local gas station. So uh, I'm I'm very familiar with the the concept of that. But let me ask you about the the threshold, where it intersects. I mean, if if you're talking about a, a more nuanced perspective that comes with the wealth of one foot in the East and one foot in the West and all of the opposites that you've talked about. Where does that intersect with, I say quite sadly, what I see is a, a very Manichaean, you know, the opposite of that a, a, a culture that we have sometimes in the Iranian diaspora, particularly in the political realm, where people uh-huh. are very black and white about what they like yeah. or dislike or, or their reaction reactions to a simple Facebook post or, or whatever it is, you know, yes. how, how do these things meet this, this beautiful threshold perspective you're talking about and this black and white Manichaean, as I say, um, way that the, our, our community can be? Yes, that's such a wonderful question. Thank you. So uh, let me call to my help uh, a great poet philosopher Uh, who, with amazing economy of word, uh, answers your question in one line of poetry. Uh, It's um, a line from Masnavi and Manavi uh, by uh, Molana, our master, uh, a poet philosopher, uh, justifiably called Hegel of the East, and um, I'm going to hopefully remember the whole line. And this is Rumi, just, by the way, for those listening who don't know Mulana. It's, we're talking yes, about Rumi. Rumi yes, Rumi, exactly, yes. So um, it says, Jange az dadast, omre in jahan. Sulhe az dadast, omre javedan. So a very rough translation of it is, The clash of opposites is as old as time itself. The harmony of opposite, harmony between opposites, is eternity itself. (laughs) And there is eternity. That's paradise-like, right? In paradise, according to at least Islam, um, death dies. Um, In paradise, we are no longer subject uh, to the passage of time, it's eternal. So what Rumi is telling us is that whereas um, these bipolar views, these unwillingness to compromise, um, this unwillingness to accept the fallibility of human beings, these unresolved conflicts are as old as time itself, as old as humanity itself. Paradise, peace, is when 
we stand at the threshold. We accept that um, we are both inside and outside. We are always an insider and an outsider. It was a revelation to me after studying Furuk Farukhzad for decades when I realized that Astane for her, I kept saying, but if my understanding of threshold literature is that it's at the border, it's an in-between space, um, it's a third space. She wrote these poems when she was inside her country. She was not an emigrant hmm. when she wrote these poems. And then I realized feeling an outsider has nothing to do with geography. Right. It's a function of how we feel about ourselves and about those around us. So yes, she wrote about Ostane and um, some of her most beautiful poems include Astane. In fact, one of my most favorite of her poems, I will greet the sun again. The last five lines of that poem have four references to Astane, to threshold. She felt an outsider inside her own country. It's a beautiful segue to a final question because I want to ask a, a final question around identity, around the diaspora, and around being outsiders to a certain extent. Uh, if your story is that you really became Iranian in terms of your consciousness once you left Iran, it is something that many of us can relate to in one way or another. With that backdrop, is it fair to say that the work that people of Iranian descent outside of Iran do is as writers, for example, is as important to the future of Iranian culture and our place in the world as what is being done inside Iran? You know, my answer is very short. Is And I rarely have such definitive answers for anything. Yes, it is as important. And um, I listened with great joy uh, your interviews with, with people I dearly love and respect, with Khanum Mekar, with Shahnush Parsipur. I have great respect for their work. I have learned a great deal from them, from their books. And I read them and reread them. Um, and I listened um, with um, uh, sorrow to um, their despair of being outside of Iran. And I respect what they say. And we find creativity where, where we can. I cannot uh, talk about that. But I can say what Shahnush Parsipur has done outside of Iran what Hanum Kar has done outside of Iran, what all these amazing writers, both male and female, are doing outside of Iran. And I only mention writers because that's my field, um, is as important to the future of the country we all love. And we all pray for 
its future and welfare as those who are writing inside the country. I thank you so much for this today. It has been a, a highlight for me. It is a conversation I will remember, and I so appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Jianjian. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Farzane Milani, an award-winning poet, translator, author, and scholar. She is a professor of Persian literature and women's studies at the University of Virginia and a former chair of the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures. Farzane Milani joined us from Charlottesville, Virginia today. Phone's back on the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza Groovy Shia, uh, Farzana Milani. I, you know what? That idea of leaving Iran only to become, only to realize one is Iranian, yes. is uh, is so interesting yes, to me and so true. So true. Yeah. So I mean, so I mean, the the, the way she described, you know, she's like, well, when, when I'm in Iran, I don't think about being Iranian. Yeah. As soon as I leave. Or when I left, I really became an Iranian woman. That was so interesting. I literally feel more Iranian since I moved to Canada. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I, I, I feel more, more Iranian since I live with a Canadian family. Mm-hmm. Because I can feel the differences. I can see it. And I, I found the Iranian parts in myself. This is what I want to talk about on Clubhouse on Friday. This this is exactly the, the the notion of where is home and who do we you know that you have to that you go somewhere else to realize what your where your home is yes. uh, to a certain extent. But do you do you remember what you how you identified in Iran or you just didn't think about it? Uh, no, in Iran I, I I identified myself as a musician, not Iranian. Mm-hmm. You know, but no. you know that's what I that's what I felt when she was just saying that about I, I think. There's all kinds of identifiers for that we have for ourselves, but we don't necessarily include the nationality. If you're a Canadian living in Canada, uh, you might say, I'm a writer, I'm an architect, I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. I'm this age, I'm this person. But you don't necessarily say Canadian because that's a given, is what she was kind of mm-hmm. saying. Uh-huh. If you move to yes. Cambodia, then you have to kind of say, but I'm Canadian because I'm, yes. I'm clearly not Cambodian. Yes. When do you think the shift happens from becoming an Iranian, learning that you're an Iranian to becoming a Canadian, for example, being here? Or does it ever? I don't think it ever does. Well, she was saying it. She was saying then after years, she grew into also being an American. Right. And she's happily bicultural. You know, she feels comfortable in both places. Attached. Like I know a lot of Italians that have been here for generations. They, they, most of the time they'll say they're, they're Canadian, but their background is Italian. Whereas Persians, even no matter how many generations they've been here, I find a lot of them. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Persians, like they, you know, they say Persian first and then Canadian second. Yeah. Yeah. From what I've heard of my experience. 
experience. I find a lot of Italians <laughs> after they've been outside of Italy for a while feel Iranian. <laughs> we are Iranian, yeah. It's all personal. It's very confusing. Uh, listen, um, well, thank you to Farzad and Milani for coming on. I know we've got some letters to get to. It's uh, Monday, and that can only mean one thing. Letters of the week. I will pay you not to say that. <laughs> Just when we had some interesting academics tuning in for the... So last week on episode 99, we had Iranian-American political satirist, uh, actor, TV, radio broadcaster, and my personal friend, Kambiz Hosseini, on the show. And I mean that. He's uh, since become a friend. Uh, on YouTube, we have a Hedi Rahmat wrote, I was a big fan of Q and Parazit, and now I'm a big fan of Rook and Paradox. Ah, I really cool. enjoyed this interview. Thanks a lot. That's very nice. That's really nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you, Hetty. And then we have... Parazit being Combeez's former show and yeah. Q being mine, just to explain that. Yes. And uh, then we have Ali Reza Jahangir wrote, Jian, why not dedicate an episode to your greatest moments at Q and play? I mean, you are unearthing the Iranian talents in the diaspora. Why not cover your brilliant years as a broadcaster and musician? Oh, thank he you has very a much, point. Ali Reza. Well, I'm here every day. I'm here. <laughs> on, you know, you guys don't need to hear more out of me. Let's let's explore other people. But thank you. What's, very kind. What's the difference between play and Q? I thought it was a one show. No, those are two different shows. Oh. Play was a TV show I did for about three years. It was a late night kind of uh, TV program uh, based on culture and arts. And then oh. Q was a radio program that was also shot for TV. So oh. different different programs. Yes, Shia. All right. I, I will do <laughs> Shaya. I have to offend one person at least every show, so Shaya's turn today. All right, moving on. We have on Instagram a Stephanie, and uh, in Farsi she also wrote Mehnoush. Yes, I could read Farsi. Mm. Thank you very much. Uh, wrote, I've listened to every single episode, and this is definitely in my top five. Yeah, a lot of people really like yeah. this Combi's episode, for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Stephanie. And then we have Sepide wrote, I'm a big fan of Combi's, but feel bad for Gian for trying to keep combis on track with this interview. <laughs> Lol. Great interview. Uh, that was uh, that, that was the fun of it. That was mm -hmm. the fun of it. Jousting with combis. <laughs> and then we have username Miss Nemo one wrote, that was awesome hearing you guys. I enjoyed it a lot. Your sincere conversation about life, love, everything and anything. Superb. Thank you, Miss Nemo. Nice. Uh, and then Tanoz Asifi wrote, Very open, honest, and candid. I enjoyed it. I truly love Kambi's Hosseini's shows and have been following him since he began the, all those years ago. Now hooked on this one. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you, Tanoz. Mm -hmm. And then Shahram wrote, Kambi spent the best days of his life fighting for the Iranian people. He's a great man. Mm. Agreed. And then Negar SM wrote, It was so great. I felt like I'm listening to both Rook and Parazit at the same time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, and then Purya Afshin wrote, This episode is one of my favorite ones. The most Rook interview and kind of out of the box compared to the other interviews. It was very entertaining. Great job, Rook team and Gian. Thank you, Purya. 
And then Arash Fazilipour wrote, so refreshing. It's really a powerful thing to be able to be real, authentic, and curse from time to time. And then he has hashtag move my culture forward. Nice. nice. Thanks, Arash. And then Ladon wrote, maybe he could do himself a favor and see a therapist for his relationships. Falling in love 18 times and not being able to keep any of his relationships. And that's in reference to him saying that he's he, he has a pretty tragic life. He's been in love 18 times. and He called himself a tragic person yeah, and when yeah. I asked him why he said that. Yeah, I was surprised when he said that. It was really rook of him. 18 or 16? I heard 18. 18. Yeah. Yeah. What difference does it make? Still too many times. <laughs> well, it's time for the letter of the week. Oh. So this week's letter of the week goes to Pegita Mahmoudzadeh. She writes, thank you. I really enjoyed this interview, Gianna Aziz. You are truly professional and unique at what you do. Each time I listen to your conversations, I think and I learn. Together, you and Mr. Hosseini performed a beautiful, rhythmic, and comfort talking to us. Varan Khali Lezat Bordam. Oh, beautiful. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. I got it actually. I'll share that with Kambis Hosseini. He mm -hmm. like that too. Thank you. Pe who is it? Pegita? Pegita Mahmoudzadeh. Pegita, merci. That's really, really kind of you. Thank you. And thank you uh, for the letter of the week and all the letters. The fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Thank you. Uh, one year anniversary coming up on Friday. Before that, our show with Pune Kodusi on Thursday. And of course, uh, we'll also see you all on Clubhouse on Friday. This is full time for Rook for today. Thank you to everybody listening. Listen for all things Rook and a way to become a patron to support us. Rookmedia.com is the web website. Rookmedia.com. Please check it out. Explore our previous episodes, our guests, our little videos, and just press, press the support us button if you want to become a patron. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together, producer Susan Ponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, thoughtful Nagin, Aray Merdad, Master Muhammad, Savi Roham, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi and as ever please 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 Mizun Bashi Mizun Bashi